0: So I am going to record these, not because I feel like I've got all this great information that needs to be recorded and put out into the universe, but there are folks that are in the visitor's class or people teaching Sunday school who can't be here, and I think it may be helpful. To the subject matter may lend itself to some degree to um, recording. I've sent out twice now the schedule for the lectures. Now, when I say lecture... There's going to be some questions if you want to ask a question. I may or may not choose to call on you just because I don't want it to break with the flow of what we're doing. Um, but the goal for the next nine weeks these are the Sundays that we have between now and the end of the year, more or less. Acknowledging that right around Christmas time, oftentimes folks are not here. And so it just, if we need to go longer, we can go longer. If there are topics that we want to discuss, we can do that as well. Um, Now, let me give you some of uh, my, just some sort of caveats or things that I want to say prior to beginning the class. Um, A lot of folks, when they think of apologetics, they think of role-playing. Like, are we going to have a role-playing session? Well, maybe you can do that with your neighbor. We're not going to do that in class. Role-playing is very difficult because it's sort of like the flu shot. Whenever you get a flu shot, you get about three strains, right? And they just think you're more than likely to contract three of these strains. The problem with role-playing is um, it's very difficult to sort of predict what circumstances will be like. Now, what we will do is we will touch on some of the challenging questions that often face Christians... But I want us to be aware of the fact that many of these tough questions the world wants to ask you are tough not because they have answers to those questions, but because they don't like the answers that the Christian faith provides to those questions. They know what Christians say about the problem of evil, they just don't like it. And so we're going to get to that topic of who is actually on the stand when it comes to an apologetics conversation. And God is never on the stand. You or they are on the stand. You are the one that has to give answers to why you are not honoring your creator as God. So what we're going to do through these series of lectures, and I don't have the handout with me, um, is I'm sort of taking some of these things that I've covered in the class that I teach in high school. Although every year that class changes a little bit because every year I've changed the textbooks because I haven't found the books that I really I, they're books that I like, but not every book is um, great for a classroom setting. Now, one of the books that I have chosen to teach my students, uh, and one of the books that I'm going to look at a little bit this year, is a book that I would recommend, um, regardless of the man's name that's on the bottom of it, Gashmoo it, by Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is a polarizing figure, um, but... Maybe one day I'll be a polarizing figure, so I don't know. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think we should judge a book by its merits. Um, And one of the things that he is doing, in fact, the subtitle to this book is How to Build Christian Communities that Save the World. One of the emphasis that I put on apologetics, especially for the young people that I teach and for anyone, is that apologetics for the normal person, is less about refuting refined, atheistic, secular, um, other religious arguments. And there are those that are out there. But it is to build a life and it is to build a covenant community that is hard to disdain. But to rather build a culture, a Christian culture, a Christian community that is good for the world. And what you have to be able to do is to live in and express that culture in a way that people understand. Um, one of the ways that Pastor Wilson puts it is, a hot war, if you're fighting a hot war, you have to have tanks and guns and missiles. If you're fighting a culture war, you have to have a culture. And what many Christian churches has, they have forsaken a Christian culture or a Deuteronomic culture. What they have essentially done is they are trying to establish a church with the bricks that the world builds with instead of building bricks and using mortar that the Bible would have us use. So as we move through this topic, um, I'm going to borrow some of the language from this book because I find it helpful. He writes at times in a very persuasive, at times um, kind of humorous, Chestertonian way, not to, I like Chesterton, he's unique in many ways, but Wilson writes in such a way as to be understood and appealing. Now, um, what I want to begin with this morning is, what is our objective in apologetics? We've got a few minutes this morning. I have notes, and I don't mind giving you these notes, but these notes are more like sermon notes, and so whenever you read notes that are like sermon notes, you just have to read them. With an understanding eye, because they're not made for public dissemination. Uh, but I'll, I'm willing to share them with you. Um, the lectures are free, but the notes will cost you ten dollars. Um, just kidding. Um, I'm willing to hand these out, but I don't have copies for you today. We will have copies of things. I will have copies for things when they're more, uh, when it's more advantageous to have that. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, bless our time this morning. Help us to be faithful students of your word so that we might be conformed more and more to it. And so, Lord, as we learn to bear and carry forth your light into the world and shine that light into dark places, even though we may receive pushback, we will also find that in doing so there will be people one for Christ. Lord, this is our great objective, and that is to bring the glory of God, to exalt the name of Christ among men of every tribe, tongue, and nation. May we be a faithful leaving to you the success of our endeavor. We pray in your name. Amen. So a Christian fundamentalist is not fundamentally wholly other than the ones to whom he or she is called to reach. What I mean by that is, uh, in Lewis's words, uh, he speaks of our whenever we encounter another living human being, regardless of what we think about their lives, And the kind of sins they may be practicing, right? If we're going out as Christians, we are going out among a people who are practicing life differently. Um, In varying ways of heinousness of sin, some of those sins are are wretched and blasphemous. Um, I would use the word even at times disgusting. They at times cause us to be shocked when we see things happening that we haven't seen before, even though they're not new, they're just sort of the same old sins expressing themselves in unique ways. We need to remember that those among whom we walk, as Lewis would say, are no mere mortals. They are immortals. Um, And everything we do with men are things that we do with immortals. We have souls that will never die. Our children's catechism says that. Uh, And so when we engage with our neighbors, we need to remember that our endeavor, our great and ultimate mission, what we want to see happen, though we're not in charge of much of it, is they, they come to know Christ, that their souls are saved, and they go to heaven. Our goal is to bring reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men. Now, we can only go so far. And in a moment, when I get to the end, What I'm pushing for is that we are earnest vindicators of the truth of God's word, and that's all we can do. We can know it, and we can express it. What I really want us to focus on as it relates to that vindication is to be as good at that as possible, leaving to God the results, right? Uh, Wendell Berry said, we don't have the right to ask whether we'll be successful. We only have the right to ask whether we'll be faithful. Now, what God promises to the faithful is success. But we don't always measure God's success or our success the way God does. And so, just as a hypothetical, a very understandable hypothetical, we go to say to university and we're talking with one of our friends. You really have to spend tens of thousands of dollars and get a four-year education to be as dumb as most Americans are today, right? You really have to spend a lot of money to be as dogmatically godless as our culture is today. Um, As Doug Kelly, one of my professors at RTS, always said, there are no atheistic tribes. Now, what he doesn't mean is simple people are stupid. He means sophisticated people, only sophisticated. That is, the sort of self-baptized sophisticates are atheistic. It is a public commitment to a wholesale rejection, a continual, perpetual, wholesale rejection of the truth of revelation. Now, when I say revelation, uh, it could mean the revelation that comes to us uh, on the tablets of gold revealed by the angel Moroni or Muhammad in his vision. Um, secularists will say, "We are irreligious, but the way you can find out the real heart and substance of a religion is to exor- or to evaluate um, people's blasphemy laws. Blasphemy laws are at the center of every religion. Right, if you were to go to Saudi Arabia and publish a cartoon in which Muhammad was in some illicit image you know with some other person what would happen you'd probably be stoned to death Um, I appreciate the desire to revere the name of something obviously that's too far Um, in our culture who are the blasphemy laws normally protecting in terms of names let's just talk about that for a minute who do our blasphemy laws protect okay Who said that? Yeah. Whoever the approved ruling class is, right? Um, There are these people groups now, um, and you can't speak ill of them. And if you do, the way in which you receive, let's say, persecution or pushback is you get fired from your job, right? Or um, someone comes to your house and – right? Right? Sir, can I see the permit for that gun you purchased? You know, those types of things. Um, Every culture has blasphemy laws. Uh, Blasphemy laws for secularists are the leaders of, I hate to beat a dead horse, the state, right? Societal leaders. And those are approved, and they're normally approved by uh, some particular group of people to which you do not belong. And so when we're looking at this subject of apologetics right now, uh, I want to talk to people who are really swimming in the swamp that is uh, the secular, man-centered, man-is-the-measure-of-all-things religion to which we often belong today. Um, We do need to know how to talk to Jews, Islamists, Eastern pantheists, Religion, all those types of people those we need to know how to engage, uh, but we also sort of have to, with the limited amount of time we have, choose an audience and most of the people, especially you young people that you're going to be dealing with, are the kinds of people whose lives are built upon a, a sort of postmodern philosophical underpinning, and that reason is because of public education. Um, most Americans today, even in private schools, are being groomed to feel offense for external, superficial reasons. And so the primary education that's going out in terms of morality is, um, how do you not be a bully? Um, Our sons, for instance, at this point in time, are working through public virtual school so that we can, although if this lesson ever gets out, they may disqualify me from... Basically a state scholarship. School choice program, school voucher, um, which is something that a lot of states have pushed for. North Carolina has a pretty good one. And so Henry and Logan get online. We don't send them off to school. They stay in school at home. And I get to hear about the things that Henry is learning, like disenfranchised voter groups. like, <laughs> great. I know what this means. We had to print a poster, and the assignment was to post it um, warning people against bullying. I'm like, you can't put that in my house. <laughs> like, that's not going on the wall in my house. Basically, what's happening is Henry is being trained to be a social justice warrior. Now, um, the Old Testament is full of exhortations given to the people of God to care for the poor, to not take a bribe, to not be enchanted by wealth, to not—it's uh, true religion, Right? go and minister to the widow and to the orphan. I don't need to be told by someone who doesn't care for the poor how to care for the poor, who uses the poor as a pawn in their schemes to garner garner more power so that they can then forget the very ones that they say they care for. Now, in order to assess the world rightly, in order to understand what is happening, we need to understand what the point of all of it is. And the foundation for the Christian worldview over and against the foundation for what is largely now a secular worldview where your primary identity and membership is not part of a group of people that believe their souls will live forever, but among those who exalt and worship the flesh. Um, when I was younger, I wasted a lot of time. Um, in college, I was very, very adept at a game called Counter-Strike, which isn't homework. <laughs> Believe it or not. And so I would sit there, and I would hone my skills at something that had no impact in the real life Uh, And video games are to real war what, um, say, pornography is to real marriage and intimacy, relationships, right? The world would have us drugged by simulation and not by actually going out and encountering the real world. And so as a young man, when I first went to seminary and I took a class on apologetics, it was my favorite class and I got a C in it because I had no idea what, it's just, what was going on. But Dr. Kruger, was my teacher at the time, was blowing my mind in terms of weaving together all of these ideas into a consistent biblical worldview by presenting to me what is often referred to as transcendental or Vantilian presuppositional apologetics. Now, those are very... Fancy terms that um, I don't say those things to impress you. I say those things because at the time, after th- three months, I still didn't really know what it meant, but I just knew, oh, this is exciting and interesting. What Van Till was trying to get the church to see was that the source and foundation for all knowledge and the objective of all human life was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the way in which we engage with humans and debate and argue things that matter for all of eternity was not through evidences or through Thomistic philosophy, but through what is often called a series of presuppositions or a priori, this is a Latin term, a priori knowledge. Now, a priori knowledge simply means this. A priori knowledge is the, the fountain. It is that highest source of appeals that everything in your life goes to as the foundation for truth. And nothing goes past it. There is nothing more fundamental or foundational than that a priori principle. So, for the Christian, the question of how do you know what you know, is the first chapter of our Confession... What is the a priori foundation for the Christian? What is it? The Word, the Bible. Yeah. That's it. Now, we have many resources, secondary standards, like the Confession, the Catechisms, other books, that say what the Bible says in ways that may make it more readily understandable to us. That's what a sermon is. But all sermons ultimately... At the heart of it is, thus saith the Lord. And so when the man of God stands up to preach, and he clearly endeavors to be clear, is endeavoring to proclaim the word of God, God is speaking. And that by his Holy Spirit, that word goes out into the world and no one is left unchanged. Either you are furthered in your pursuit of holiness, towards the kingdom or you are condemned in your sins and God is heaping judgment up upon you. Those two things are happening in the church house every Sunday, every time the word is preached. And so every time we are going out and we are endeavoring to communicate with someone who does not believe what is true, which means you can have apologetic conversations with other believers. In fact, R.C. Sproul talks about the three sort of objectives. He talks about it in this way, or three aims Of apologetics, the first aim of apologetics is to provide an answer to the critics of the Christian faith, like a Richard Dawkins or a Bill Maher, those types of people, or your um, college professor, even at Gaston College, Dorn is taking classes, and he walked into his professor's office, and there on the filing cabinet is every liberal mantra on a sticker posted to the side of his filing cabinet, right? And, I mean, even in the first day of class, his whole identity is wrapped up in those mantras. And, you know, Dorn is just sort of... Give me one, Dorn. Can you give me one? One what? Give me like, one of the things your professor said to you. Oh, uh, that the Second Amendment should be amended. Abolished. Well, that, okay, well, I think there's probably no one sympathetic to that in this church. Depends. If we were closer to Charlotte, it may be different. But, um, you know, those types of things. Sorry if any of you who live east of here are offended. Don't be. Um, you know, those types of things. Or the First Amendment. Recently, someone said, oh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. The First Amendment is dangerous. Well, it's only dangerous to people who hate the truth. Really? I mean, it really is. Uh, in fact, the beauty of... Uh, what we are experiencing even now um, is that you have every right to go out and, and be a bit dangerous, and you need to see yourself as dangerous. Our goal is to roll under the feet of Christ's kingdom all of these untruths. Now, part of the problem is sometimes you are the target in apologetics. None of us are out from underneath, or none of us are excused from the challenges of God's word coming against us and 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 changing us. And so the first step in the life of the apologist is first and foremost to be willing to be transformed by the word first. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Isn't this sort of Ligonier verse, the Ligonier verse? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what, is that, prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So our goal is not to be conformed. It is easy, easy, easy to be conformed. When you're in middle school and you're taught, the first several days of class are devoted to essentially what amounts to a communist worldview. A socialistic worldview. Right? Your primary membership is of the state and not of the eternal kingdom that will endure forever. That's hard to get away from. What's often hard too, is that when you are engaging with these people who have been swimming in a sea of of sort of postmodern my truth is the truth, and that's the only truth that matters, is to which truth do you appeal? And we're going to get into that. But the first aim of apologetics is to be able to provide an answer to the critics of the Christian faith. This is what Paul did in Acts chapter 17 when he confronted the Epicureans and the Stoics, those followers of the two popular philosophical schools in his day. So Paul was waging theological battle against those teachers now, the second major aim of apologetics is to tear down the intellectual idols of our culture. And there's going to be a lot of that. In a minute, I'm going to talk about those intellectual idols. The third, Sproul says, is to encourage the saints. That's what this is, I hope. This is, parents, what you should be doing with your children. Teaching them to be David. So that when Goliath struts up to them with his big sword and big spear and his helmet and his armor and he is spewing forth blasphemies against the name of God, David looks at him and says, how dare you? I don't come to you with a sword and a spear. I come to you in what? The name of the... uh, Yeah. The name of the God of Israel. And he walks over to the stream and he picks up stones and he slings it into his head and while still... Well, I don't think it killed Goliath. I think the next blow is what killed him. He walked over to Goliath and he cut his head off with his own sword. I kind of want to, i do not saying I don't want to do that. I want you to do that. That's our goal in apologetics. And so what often happens is we look at the things, the, the sort of insurmountable enemies within the world, the Goliaths, and we say, oh, he's so big and this actually actually comes from Wilson, the thing that made David different is not that he said, oh, he's so big. He said, look at that forehead, I can't miss. (laughs) I love that line. And I've, I've carried that with me because a lot of it does depend on your perspective. It's the perspective of Romans 12 and Romans 13. Satan knows his end is short. And we must exercise faith and patience. And the great testimony of the saints is ultimately, what Peter says, a life of joy and faithfulness so that others look at you and go, how do you have such joy in times like these? Uh, My point is, for churches like Reformation, um, as times get more challenging, that's when we have even greater opportunity. Now, I want to look at the things that we ought to take aim at. As it relates to the objective in apologetics, our goal is to tear down the strong high places in the hearts and minds of men, whether they are individuals or corporate groups of people. And so I'm going to read from this little book here. It comes from chapter 1, and in it he talks about five sort of high places. Um, And this is what he said. Uh, I'll read this to begin with. You don't want me to read? <laughs> no! I want to go home. I want you to when people are you're talking to people, I'm gonna say, no. <laughs> the root of every rebellion in every culture, right? This is the universal root of every rebellion, must always be identified as pride and the lust for autonomy. But this central sin manifests itself in different ways in different times, using different methods, concepts, and techniques. So this is an apologetics class. ...for this day and age, and here are the areas that he identifies as unique expressions of human pride and autonomy. The first, secularism, which is the idea that a culture can be religiously neutral. This is not a nice but different goal. Rather, it is an incoherent concept. All cultures serve their gods, and ours is no exception." Our pretense of neutrality does not make us less worshipers, but it does guarantee that we are most confused about our worship. Okay, We live among a people who are desperately disconnected from something eternal. That's secularism. Darwinism. The idea that we somehow arrived here by ourselves... Which, which makes secularism a scientifically respectable concept. A century or so ago, many Christians thought that we could make our peace with Darwinism, he writes, but the bills are now coming due. I want you to know this. When pastors, famous pastors in the PCA, push Christian theistic evolution, those are not concepts that we can make room for in the Christian faith. Christian theism is that Adam and Eve were not the first persons, they either were the descendants of primates or they came about as chosen people from a whole group of people. This is theistic evolution. What theistic evolution is is a compromise of the story of historical narrative of creation. That's one of the ways in which cre- Christians have given up and ceded territory to secularists because they want to write columns in the New York Times or the Atlantic or wherever else. Right? The bills are coming due. Because we've lost the hearts of our children. If you tell a kid he's an animal, guess what? He's gonna act like an animal. I don't even have to tell my kids to act like animals, they act like animals. All right. I have examples, but I won't share them. <laughs> Egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is the idea that blessings for others are tantamount to oppression for me. Egalitarians view everything as a zero sum game. If someone else gets a bigger piece of the pie, this necessitates that someone else is going to get a smaller piece. But in the world that God has made, the pie grows. I love that. So that's the third ideology, wretched ideology. The fourth, value-fact distinction. Now this is a little more difficult at times to grasp. The idea that reality is divisible and that science is in charge of the facts while each individual can invent and tailor his own values in any way he pleases. This is often called personhood theory. So basically, there are facts, but those facts can be separated from your truth. This is how you get to the point where you can say, like the head of Planned Parenthood, some men and trans men can give birth. (laughs) <laughs> so just let that sink in. This is the head of an organization that is famous for women's health care or child murder, whichever way you want to look at it. Neither one is health care. They say something, the only way that that statement can be made is if you have a fact, a fact value distinction. It enables you to say, I believe in science on the one hand, but science doesn't apply to me on the other hand. It's Babel. And when I say Babel, when we look at Genesis 11, the curse for building the tower as a revolution against God is not just were they speaking different languages or could they not agree what a hammer was? Right? So Growing up, I learned plumbing, the male and female end. Those rules are now thrown out the window. How do you even do plumbing anymore? It's all thrown out the window in this world. And I I it sounds silly, but I'm not the one saying these things. And here's the problem. It maybe does some good to the soul to laugh a little bit. But let's not forget um, recently, Netflix published a new series on Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was ministered to in prison and by every right, as far as we are concerned, made a credible profession of faith and is in heaven. This is a man who killed people and ate them. The reason why the world does not like Jeffrey Dahmer, and they make series, titillating series about his violence, is because the world loves murder and they hate redemption. They hate atonement. And so that story, it's not a story about how he came to know Christ and how a minister visited him in prison. And I think, Spencer, you said the day that John Wayne Gacy was murdered was the day that Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized, or uh, executed, was was the day that Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized. Now, I cannot say for sure where Jeffrey Dahmer is, but I can say this. In a world of fact, value, distinction, there is no place for redemption. There is no place for it. And then the fifth one, oh, actually there's six. Whoops. Relativism, subjectivism, and the despotism of feelings. The idea that the world of facts is not the controlling reality. Reality, in other words, is optional. It's how I feel. I feel trapped. And here was the problem. Amongst the boomers, the church never said to men who felt like leaving their wives, divorce is wrong, we're going to discipline you for it. That didn't happen when my parents were growing up. No one was disciplined for divorce. That's amazing. Now, I'm not saying that that problem has led to the problem we have today, but it is of the same variety. Oftentimes the church struggles to say, no, that's wrong. It is against God's word. And as an apologist, what we are doing, our objective is to walk into that room where there are relativism, subjectivism, despotism, the rule and reign of those things and say, what you are doing is contrary to scripture. And it is loving, but it will not be received that way. It will not be received that way. And then the the, the last one he mentions is the admiration of the cool kids. The idea that what really matters is copying a pose. This is the tough one for the church because it is hard, especially if you're planning a church. Every, you want everybody to join the church. And one of the great problems even in Israel that God was establishing the law to combat was favoritism. So let's say someone comes into the church and says, I'm going to give you a million dollars to build a gymnasium, which I don't know. Are there any OPC churches with a family life center or whatever they call them to make them feel like they didn't waste their money? Someone paid for that building. It's hard to discipline people you rely upon for your financial help. It's hard when, you are, when your heart is in the world to also work against and attack the very thing that your heart is in. And so these things are things that we will talk about as we're dealing with the, the, the goal and objective in apologetics and apologetics as we move through this series Um, But our objective in apologetics ultimately is to vindicate the truth of God's word in every sphere of human life. Now when I say every sphere of human life, what I mean is individual, family, church, state. In every group that you are a member of, you are called to vindicate the truth of God's word within that group of people to the best of your ability. And you will oftentimes fail at the objective of persuading others as to the validity and the truth of the Christian worldview. And when that happens and others revile you and despise you, you are to take joy even in that. So really, apologetics is the embracing of a life in which you Communicate the truth of God regardless of the fruit of that conversation, even if it means persecution. And so the call to apologetics isn't the call to dominate the heretic, though that, you know what I mean, to stand over them, victorious, the head, the severed head of Goliath laying at your feet. (laughs) Christ ultimately is the one who has done that to death, right? That's the great promise of Goliath and David is that Christ has come and he has conquered the great enemy of the church. But what is part of that promise is that in some fashion, through faithfulness, what God will do is he will take your efforts and he will use them in some capacity to bring others to Christ. Or to bring conquest to the church. The question is are we willing to do that? And it's not really can I do apologetics, it's Will I do apologetics? You have within you the Holy Spirit. You have this incredible record of divine revelation. Oftentimes the reason why we are such bad apologists is not because we don't read books like this. It's because we don't read this book right here. And we don't count it worthy to suffer for God's sake. Um, And so my call to you as we move through this stuff is to become students of the word to enter into the intellectual life of bible study to take the things that you hear on sunday and to apply those things into your daily life and to live a life that is above reproach and that so that men might say hey this guy he's got he may have some answers that's not always going to happen though all right we got well let's take a minute or two any questions anything at all So this is sort of the warm-up. Next Sunday we will continue. I will, will, if you want these notes, you can have them. Uh, There's a lot more here uh, in terms of focused notes. But I don't want you to uh, be ruled by fear. I don't want you to be ruled by this idea that apologetics is for the really smart Christians, you know, the guys that went to seminary or went to college or have read a book. We've probably all read about the same number of books. <laughs> and we've probably, the great, like I said er, uh, earlier, the great need for us um, is, to, is to read God's Word. And I don't mean just the sections where people are being apologists. Read the Ten Commandments. Because God's Word is what will transform our lives. Any questions? You're tired? It's, been, it's a long morning, worship in Sunday school. Yes, sir? On the stand. On the stand. Yeah. They're gonna attack because it's gonna they're gonna go through the stages of grief, right? The five stages. crew like, Initially, there's gonna be the denial, It's going to be anger, they're gonna lash out. I mean these things are gonna yeah. work their way through and 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 it's hard to you know, obviously in that process keep your cool for that, but it's understanding what you're going after mm-hmm. and not hard Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the there's thing. no nice way to punch someone in the gut. No, right, exactly. Right? Right. It just right. isn't. Right. We're speaking metaphorically, folks. <laughs> I guess it's a good way to keep them there while you want to talk to them. Yeah. But yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it's. We don't need to read more books about how to do it. You just need to do Yeah. But there's some good books to read about doing it. Yeah. Practice, practice, practice. And practice with the saints. And when I say practice with the saints, talk about things that matter. Um, Talk about doctrine. Talk about the glory of Christ. Because whenever we begin to sort of rub on one another in our conversations, there's some heat that's produced. Um, Spencer and Teresa and Carl and I have been walking through our neighborhood recently getting ready for this ruck. And when Spencer and I, I mean, we walked how many? Ten miles? Ten and a half miles yesterday? It was about three hours. I mean, walking three hours with Spencer... (laughs) <laughs> I love Spencer. And it's always things that matter. And so what happens is that heat that comes in a, in a desire to honor God, and we're, we're saying ideas, and he'll say something, and then I'll go, "Oh, let's, I'm going to add, and it's this building, it's iron sharpening iron, and what it results in, I hope, is um, lives that more fully reflect the glory and honor of God, greater discipleship. And if you do that with the saints, you'll be able to do that with people outside the church more easily. Because the things that matter to you are the things that matter to them. They may not say it. They may not want to admit it. But you do hold the answer, not because you have it, but because God has given it to you. So do it in humility. All right. Well, I said 10 till we're five minutes late. That's okay, though. Let's pray.